Massachusetts is now perhaps the bluest of blue states. Democrats hold virtually every elected position of any significance here, from our congressional delegation to state offices from governor on down. Republicans barely register. Against that backdrop, we're taking a look at the role of the two political parties in Massachusetts today. Both have recently elected new party chairs. But with such a lopsided playing field, what role do the parties and their new leaders play? And with Massachusetts having one of the least competitive landscapes in the country when it comes to elections for state legislature as well as other seats, is it time to rethink the basic structure of our democracy? I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. This week on the podcast, we're taking stock of the state of party politics in Massachusetts. I'm joined by Ed Lyons, a Republican activist who's been very critical of his party's sharp turn to the right, and Peter Ubertasio, a political scientist who is vice president for academic affairs at Stonehill College. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Be here. Uh, Peter, uh, Republicans and Democrats have elected new party chairs in the last few months. And for the Democrats, I feel like Steve Kerrigan, their new chair, uh, and it, this will date me a little bit, uh, but I feel like he's like the Maytag repairman. I'm not sure what there is exactly for him to do other than to sit back and watch watch everything play out to his party's advantage. And meanwhile, Amy Carnevale, the new Mass GOP chair, has an almost impossible task, it seems. And, and it's not clear that she's actually pushing for that much of a pivot in, in the party's direction. Um, how much do these positions matter here today? Uh, not as much as they used to. If you, if you go back uh, much further in history, uh, political parties are not uh, very powerful entities unto themselves. Party identification is not as powerful as it was. And, uh, you know, the parties have important roles to play in our democracy, but they're not controlling organizations, right? They, uh, anyone can self-select to run for a Republican or Democratic nomination. Uh, so, you know, they're, and, and they've ceded uh, some of their power and authority over the years to much bigger and more powerful uh, PACs uh, and dark money organizations that tend to fuel our politics. Having said all of that, there's still a really important role for them to play in organizing our politics, you know, both literally organizing them in, in the ballot, uh, for example, but also providing outlets for, for people to express their views um, and, uh, and to organize at a local level. And so obviously the, it is, it is e e Steve Kerrigan's job is much easier uh, if you define uh, success as winning elections, then you would prefer to be in Steve Kerrigan's position because Democrats uh, just routinely win over and over everywhere. Uh, but he still has a coalition that he pulls together. He still has uh, uh, conventions that he needs to to organize. He has a lot of success in that area in a previous life. You know, so I think that while they still matter, uh, despite the turmoil that we've seen in the Republican Party here in Massachusetts over the past number of years, they're they're really not the the, the strong organizations that they once were. And Ed, how do you, how do you see the two parties uh, in Massachusetts today? Uh, dead. Uh, I don't think they serve any useful purpose anymore that cannot be performed by other organizations. I don't think anything has suddenly happened. The, the metaphor I use is that, you know, it's an inconvenient truth, the fact that our two-party system doesn't do what it was designed to do anymore, uh, that... Uh, the Republican Party, it's not that anything suddenly happened to them. 
there's been a political climate change in Massachusetts. Some of it is local. We've turned very much more blue. Certain places that could have been one white Republicans can no longer be one white Republicans. I think national politics has started to dissolve state politics and prevent local adaptations. Super PACs have moved in and wield enormous power compared to uh, what the parties. Not only that, the Democratic Party, they're the only organization in the state that can't take part in Democratic primary elections, which is where the only action is anymore. So I think on his face, I mean, telling 25-year-olds, oh, the, there's a party platform that gets together in a room, wants to be four years, write this document, nobody reads. It's just so arcane. It has nothing to do with what is happening anymore. So I think it's time that we sort of move beyond this model. It's difficult. We're all very invested in the in, in the two-party system. But honestly, I think everybody knows they don't determine who wins anymore. And I mean, just uh, talk for a minute about uh, uh, your party. Uh, I don't know how much you're claiming the mass Republican Party as yours these days. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they there was a, a lot of turmoil in that party. They've ousted their former chair, who confusingly has the same last name as you, but as far as I know, is not a brother or even distant cousin, Jim Lyons. Um, and so now there's a new chair, Amy Carnevale, who's pledged kind of, you know, uh, to bring kind of peace and uh, and kind of more order to the party. But I, I don't, she certainly didn't run on any platform of kind of uh, shaking up the sort of basic direction the party's been going in, did she? No, I mean, she, I mean, I, I used to know Amy. She, she's been my state committee woman for several years now. Uh, you know, she's basically professionalizing the unpopular opinions of the party, um, and she's driven entirely by national politics. Her op-ed in the Globe a few weeks ago was all about national politics. Uh, it doesn't matter what she does. I think she'll be way better than Jim Lyons, but it really is not important what Amy does because there are no resources. The media has written off the mass GOP. You know, they don't have any candidates. They're going to recruit yet another white businessman to run against Elizabeth Warren from Cape Cod. We've seen this movie over and over again. They've unseated one incumbent Democrat in the past 25 years, which is Ryan Fatman in the Worcester 18th. Again, it's not any one thing. It's that the climate has changed and suddenly, you know, they're just not viable anymore. And I think the things that affected them also affected Democrats, nationalization, other things, media, money. It's not just that, but for the Republican Party, it drags them so far from the middle that they, they don't have the resources to come back. So I portray it as an extinction, not as you know some big mistake they made, or if they just adopted majority opinions, none of that. I mean, I've been, I've been involved with them for 25 years now. I've seen all these things, but if you look at the PD, the PD, um, you know, the election results over time, and you, it's like seeing like the the Arctic ice sheet where it's like a heartbeat where it kind of like goes down like this, and that's what's been happening. It's the fact that it's sort of a slow extinction, and we know they're not going to win a bunch of elections. We know they're not going to become congressmen. We know they're not going to become statewide anymore. It's like it's just hard to just accept the fact that it's over. And uh, Peter, how do you see? sort of in contrast to that, the Democrats as a sort of state party functioning, Ed is kind of questioning, you know, kind of the relevance of either party, uh, you know, notwithstanding the big disparities in the in the power they hold. And I guess I am struck a little bit. I mean, he made a reference to the state party platforms um, and um, the Democratic Party platform, you know, is, you know, to this point about how parties internally tend to kind of move toward the polls. The Democratic Party platform, you know, is a, is a, is a good bit to the left of where most Democratic voters are. It's certainly to the left of where the sort of centers of power are in the legislature, or even now in the in the in the form of the governor's office that the party's recaptured. So it does make you 
you, you kind of wonder about the disconnect between the party structure itself and then what the folks who are actually elected to office as Democrats, the policies they're pursuing. Sure. Uh, party platforms are written by party activists meant to appease the activists who attend the convention. They're, they're not a governing document. Uh, and there, there has been a, there, uh, historically a misconception over what these, these documents are designed to do. Political parties in the United States have always been, relative to their counterparts elsewhere, fairly weak organizations. So the modern, you know, platform that that Ed referred to, you you mentioned, uh, th these are these are designed for activists. They're designed designed for activist consumption. Uh, they're not going to uh, dictate how legislators, governors, or other elected officials act because they don't. There's no <laughs> there's no stick to demand it. You know, they and and that has always been the case. And I think that we we often mistake those documents to say representing uh, the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party in Massachusetts is made up of activists who attend a convention or attend local party caucuses who might draft and approve a, uh, a, a platform. It is also made up of uh, all of those independently elected office holders all around the state, many of whom are far more conservative, I know it's a relative concept, more conservative than the activists, uh, right? And it is made up of people who vote Democratic, even if they don't uh, identify as a Democrat in any official capacity. So our, our parties are really, you know, the, the concept of a political party uh, is one that is very large, often atomized. Uh, it, it does not have a central unit. So, you know, Steve Carrigan doesn't control the uh, wishes and demands of all Democrats uh, in the Commonwealth. Uh, he has no formal control over individually elected uh, members of the House, the Senate, the governor, or any of that kind of stuff. You know, so I just think, you know, our concept, I, I, I agree with that largely, that parties as uh, the, the, our conception of them has changed so dramatically and they are practically useless, except I would say, they still provide an organizational feature to our governing structures. But as party organizations designed to campaign uh, and, and win elections, we are a candidate-centered uh, polity. We Candidates decide on their own. They often get funding on their own. Parties can be useful in our campaigning. Um, Dem but you know, as I say, the Democratic Party is so large and overwhelming that winning the Democratic nomination is tantamount to winning an election in most places. In a good year, the Republican Party can provide some assistance uh, organizationally to candidates, but what we're likely to see are self-funded candidates anyway, who are going to pull together the resources on their own. So I think, you know, we, we just need to change our understanding of what we mean when we talk about political parties. But we, but we pay a tax. There's a cost to this system apart from all those benefits. And what do you mean by that, Ed? Well, let's take you know, the Congressional, look, look, look at our federal election, just for the concept here. So you want to say that, that you know, Lori Trahan, Catherine Clark, and Jake Auchincloss all won low turnout Democratic primaries by very small amounts that went on to face Republicans that, who couldn't possibly win when those districts would have done better if each of them would have run in the general against the second place finishers for those. So I think you see these useless general elections. You have a Democratic primary that doesn't do what it should have done, and the district is represented less accurately because of this structure. 
I mean, it's one of many costs that I see of having the system that we have, but that's a big one. There's, you know, the Trump voters in Lawrence who will never be able to, you know, express themselves to anything above the local level. It's 25,000 Republicans in Boston who, you know, can't get anything above the local level. It's the fact that one third of the state of Massachusetts has nobody to vote for in the statewide and federal races because of national political forces they can't control. So they're used to sort of pulling the level for R as a protest. They now have nobody electable to vote for, and they've been accidentally disenfranchised by this system. There are many other things that are wrong, but that's those are just some of the taxes that we pay for this system, apart from the good things that they can do on their on, on their best behavior. And, and in terms of kind of formal party uh, designation, it's probably important, I guess, to note that we've just seen this continued march of voters toward uh, designation here in Massachusetts we call unenrolled. I always have a hard time getting my head around that. I think that means you're not registered if you're not enrolled, but in other states they would be called independent or not aligned. Uh, and, and they now are over 60% of our electorate. So it's, it's a, a funny quirk, and maybe this has to do with the fact that we have uh, to get not too into the weeds, but our primaries, I guess you would call them what, semi-open primaries. So you can vote in either primary if you're registered in that party, or if you're in this big pool of 61% of the people who are not enrolled in either party. So that has kind of driven the numbers of unenrolled up. And I mean, the Democrats, we say that, you know, kind of reign supreme here, uh, you know, there's only 29% of registered voters are actually formally Democrats. Uh, Republicans can't even... Uh, claim double digits there at 9%. Does that, I mean, do those numbers matter or do they speak in some ways to this, uh, the kind of waning influence of parties, Peter? They they matter. They have been on a long-term decline. So, you know, as Ed mentioned earlier, this is not particularly new. People have been choosing to register as unenrolled or independent for, for many, many decades. Uh, Americans are uh, an anti-party people. Uh, they have been for a very long time. So the fact that they're not, you know, formally declaring themselves a member of a, of a political party is is uh, interesting, uh, not new. But I would also say it, it it's it's a surface uh, issue. Meaning, you know, if you ask an unenrolled voter if they belong to the Democratic or Republican Party, they'll say no, I'm independent. If you ask them how they vote, they will likely say, well, I vote Democratic. Right. Or if you looked at the last five elections, that would it'd be borne out by their record. I mean, yeah. right. And so that and that's a that's a cultural issue. You know, people identify uh, with the parties, um, even if they don't formally declare it. Now, it might suggest that there's room for something else. Uh, but we have become so um, used to the structure that we have, which is a structure that, you know, n not that the framers had the answers to everything, but they never envisioned a two party system such as we have it. Uh, it, it solved some problems of uh, early American democracy, uh, and it has lasted. Uh, but, you know, for most of our history, we had two large political parties, but the, the concept of a, a, a national party was, was silly because you had too many differences between uh, and among the, the local parties. You know, the national party only existed as a grouping of all the local parties to come to come some consensus on presidential nominations. Uh, what has happened, as Ed has noted, is that nas the nationalization of our politics has zapped local parties of their own culture and identity. Uh, and, you know, so if you're a Republican in Massachusetts, that's particularly problematic because you've just 
you know, uh, in addition to the structural issues that he mentioned, uh, the identity of the party is now so driven by a, a nationalizing trend that Republicans have have absolutely no shot here in any any reasonable sense. But the same is true if you are, you know, Democrats in in Texas, right? You you the National Party trends really limit your ability to maneuver. I view that as highly problematic. There are ways to get around it, uh, as have you both have suggested. There are some institutional features that we could change. We have it within our power to do this. We we choose party primaries as the method of winnowing the field. It's odd to continue to make that choice at a moment when fewer and fewer people belong to political parties and when fewer uh, and fewer uh, candidates emerge in truly competitive general elections. So there are possibilities to solve this problem through legislative action. And let's talk about that a little bit. And just to sort of underline your point, I think, Peter, about just how kind of out of kilter things have become and how much in Massachusetts, uh, to use the example, the, the challenges of, of trying to operate under the Republican Party uh, label are here. Uh, you don't have to look any further than the fact that we had, you know, Charlie Baker, arguably, you know, again, through all these polls, we kept seeing them, one of the most popular governors in America. And um, yet, uh, you know, whether he really just had felt the job was done and the NCAA was maybe beckoning in his in his ear or or what other people think, which is that, you know, he was he was going to face this kind of bizarre scenario of maybe not being able to make it through a Republican primary, despite his outsized popularity. I mean, there's nothing that tells you more how how kind of distorted things have become here than something like that. So I just wonder, uh, to your point, and when we say, as Ed talked about these congressional races, we've had a number of these where we've had an open congressional seat, 10 Democrats compete, somebody emerges with 20 to 30 percent of the vote, and they are congressman or woman for life, or you know at least for 20 years, and the and the general election is effectively over. I mean, um, I mean that's the that and we see that over and over. Now we're seeing that uh, you know we haven't in recent years we've had competitive races for governor um, that didn't even happen this year, and then you just go down the line of attorney general, state auditor, all the races. It just seems like the Democratic primary occurs, game over. So what should we be thinking about doing? Or, and do you think there is any appetite? Uh, obviously, a lot of the kind of uh, uh, folks in power probably feel pretty good about the way things work now, but it, it may not be really serving our democracy well. Uh, other states do it differently. Just talk, both of you, about some ideas or what you might like to see the state uh entertain. So I'll, I'll jump in first. So yes, the majority of uninvolved vote like partisans. It's true. All the pros like Peter know that. But the difference is, is the fact that if you give them polarized choices, they'll vote that way. If you give them a conservative like Representative Turco or a liberal Republican like Charlie Baker, they won't vote that way. Right. So the key is that that we, to get the uninvolved to exercise their full identity, we need a different system that lets them vote for people that aren't on the edges. If you get, you know, I mean, look at more Healy polling from Mass Inc. showed the fact that one fifth of Republicans plan to vote for more Healy. Right, because she ran this moderate campaign, she seemed like she would continue some of the good stuff from Charlie Baker. I mean, she's the bet noir of of the people who actually make up the Republican Party. But like I voted for her, I thought she was reasonable, right? But but you know, that's but so we need a system that sort of captures different kinds of 
ideas about Massachusetts politics and the current system cannot do that in lots of ways. And that is unfortunate. So there are many things I'll let Peter take this, but you know, Alaska system, I think is excellent. Uh, I think California has. What is the Alaska system? Just help people who uh, haven't been uh, reading the Anchorage daily news or whatever would be telling you about that. I mean, they basically have a, you know, a two rounds. One is sort of like a final four, final five, and they have ranked choice voting after that. And they ended up famously having in a special election last time electing a pro-choice Republican, which is what Alaskans, the majority, actually wanted. But previously, they said you can either have a uh, an anti-abortion firebrand like Sarah Palin, or you can have a you know a more liberal person. And they didn't have that middle person to vote for. And when they had these, this new system, they got it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of thing we need here. I'll let Peter take it from there. Yeah, I, I think you know Ed is referring to a kind of experimentation that we we in Massachusetts should be exploring, and, and we're not. And I think you know, Michael, you mentioned that you know people in power don't want to disrupt the system that has that has helped put them in power. But I think it would it would produce a more competitive political environment. You know what, what you have in particularly in the Republican Party, which is a small subset of voters in in Massachusetts under you know the previous president, uh, but it's not completely because of him. They they have become a hard right activist base. And in the best of circumstances, you think well that they're part of a coalition, right? And you need coalitions to win elections. I think as as the practices of the party itself have demonstrated, they're not really interested in winning elections. That's bad for democracy. Uh, it, it's it, you want competition. So what we don't have, what you have, I'm sorry, what we do have is a system where a relatively small number of people vote in primaries, dictating choices for the rest of the population. But once they've made that decision, because the Republican Party here is so incredibly weak uh, and doesn't contest so many races, you 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 end up with these uncontested general elections where more people are participating. The system that Ed described, there are a variety of ways to do this. I mean, the ranked choice voting, there's runoff voting, there there are uh, open so primaries where all parties participate. jungle primary or, right, or called everyone California, jumps in. I think, does that, right? Indeed. And so everyone competes in the same primary and the, 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 the top two advance to the general election. Now, the result is in some places, I suspect in a place like Massachusetts, you'd have two Democrats uh, uh, advancing to the general election, but then you'd have a choice. Right. And that's currently what we don't have. We're, we're not going to have it in the upcoming Senate race. You know, it, it, it's it's the, the person running against Warren is not going to be a viable candidate, uh, ultimately uh, running the same year that the president's running for reelection here. Uh, if you had a different system, you might you might end up with more viable or more competitive general elections than we currently have. And that that uh, institutional change like that might kind of help force the issue for parties like the Republicans, uh, certain kinds of Republicans, a Charlie Baker kind of Republican who we know can not only win, but can win by very large numbers in Massachusetts, would be more viable uh, in, a, in a, a system like that than they are if they have to navigate you know, the current primary structure, which is dominated by hardcore activists. Yeah, so look in Boston. Boston just had a race where Mayor Wu and Anissa Sabe George were the finalists, right? Mayor Wu was more progressive. Anissa was a, a Democrat who was for civil rights and everything, kind of had a bit more of a moderate conservative feel to her. And there was a real, a bigger choice with many more, there's a great variety of candidates in the first round. They went to 
her versus Nisa Tabe George in the final, and she won. And there really were a lot of choices, both in the first round and the second round. It was way better for Boston. We have to somehow convey that many elections in Massachusetts are already done successfully in this fashion. It's a question of are we going to take what we've learned from these elections and apply it to lots of other elections? I think you're right. The people in power don't like it, but the people in power have watched this you know, play out in a different way already here in Massachusetts. Well, I think if, if there's going to be a change, I guess it's going to probably have to come uh, from somewhere other than those the, the seats of power. Uh, we'll see if there's enough, uh, you know, if there's enough of a push there. Ha- you know, there, there are conversations that have been, uh, you know, initiated. This is these are the kind of issues that um, that Danielle Allen, the Harvard professor who briefly ran for governor uh, last year, has been sort of trying to stir conversation around uh, getting people to basically, you know, think outside the box, think outside the current structure, but with, you know, kind of the North Star being kind of, you know, what would bring more vigor to the democratic uh, process here? And as, as you pointed out, there certainly are, are a lot of things out there that seem like they would, uh, they would do that, whether we can, uh, whether we muster the, the, the wherewithal uh, to make it happen will be the question, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it has to come through. It either is going to come through, uh, you know, petition process or the legislature, and uh, that, that's the only two ways that that this kind of change is going to happen. What it, what I would say is that what what Danielle confronted, uh, and it, it, this is just a reality, is this: people do care about these issues, but if you ask them to rank the things that they're concerned about, the structure of primary and general elections is not going to rank very highly, right? So it, it the, you need this kind of sustained. Uh, action uh, in order to grab folks' attention and for and move this forward because they're really they're really interested in you know education they're really interested in healthcare I mean the, the kind of important issues that impact person's life when you when you talk to folks about this issue they're interested in it, but it's not what necessarily motivates them at the polling place right yeah let me add, let me add one more thing about this which is that I think that. You know, there are other costs we haven't talked about. It isn't just the fact that you might get a more moderate Democrat in an office. That's true. You might get more outsiders. But another bigger thing is what happens if the Republicans in this state radicalize? There are places like Oregon where they kind of give up on the electoral process and they really radicalize and can become somewhat dangerous um, in terms of, you know, sort of like deciding they're not part of the state. You know, the, all the talk of secession in, you know, eastern Oregon and some of the awful things that have happened out there. We haven't contemplated what happens when significant numbers of citizens decide to just stop trying to win and their political gatherings are more or less an us versus them thing versus the state. So I think disenfranchisement and alienation may have a cost over time that is much worse than simply not having more centrist Democrats. I do think we have started to have the conversation about not just the benefits, but the harms of a system that is accidentally excluding a lot of people. So, you know, I think that I'm glad we're here today to have this discussion. I think we have to socialize the need to have a more inclusive, more competitive process. Like my my slogan is bring back the general election. You know, and I hope that Daniel Allen is for that. I think let's let's figure out ways to do this. But as Peter says, we have to sell it and it probably has to go through the petition process. I think ranked choice voting was a little early here when it failed last time. I'd like to see it come back again. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank you both for a good conversation and uh, we'll, we'll we'll continue it um, at Lyons. And uh, Peter Ubertacio, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We will see you again next week.